Alrighty, welcome back to Brojo Online, Dan Munro. Today we're going to be talking about cosmic perspective, something I did a chapter about in my latest book, The Naked Truth. We're going to be having a look at a perspective that you can take on life and reality that's going to help you better accept what's happening to you, better accept other people and the way they are, better accept yourself, and just generally not be so bothered by all the little things that happen to you. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. So, since becoming a father, my downtime has been significantly reduced. I'm generally quite a lazy person who has a lot of relaxation time. So I've gone from a lot to zero. And there's not much I can do combination of having a newborn who has some you know health issues plus it's winter and snowing like fuck all the time plus covid has been the only thing i really want to do in terms of hobbies and such has been severely curtailed but i finally found something i found something that works for me which is chess it's a game i had some interest in when i was younger but never really got into it properly and it's kind of perfect for me it's uh challenging I get to compete against other people. I've been looking for something competitive. And I can do it from the comfort of my own home. It's an online thing that you can do. Now, so that's all I got at the moment. Long story short, a couple of times I was playing it when I really should have been paying attention to Lucy and Chloe. I was kind of distracted by it. So Lucy has a legitimate beef about my presence. And she kind of challenged me playing this game. And I got really upset. I had that whole narrative in my head about how this is the only thing I've got left. You know, she's trying to take it away from me. And if I can't have this, then I've got nothing. And what kind of man lets his wife tell him what he can and can't do? It was this whole big narrative, right? And I actually sort of lay awake at night fuming about this. We weren't able to discuss it. We usually have uh, pretty good confrontations about stuff like this. But we'd just put Chloe to sleep. We're, We're lying right next to her. It wasn't the time or the place. So I couldn't get it out. And it just fumed around in my head, and I didn't get to sleep for like three hours. Why do I tell you that story? Because how fucking ridiculous is it to lose three hours sleep over such a little thing? My wife being slightly upset that I wasn't present because I was playing chess on my phone. I lost three hours sleep over that? Where's the injury? Where am I harmed? How is that something worthy Of three hours of suffering. This example is representative of the examples all of us have in our lives where we lose significant quality periods of time worrying, frustrated, disappointed about things that, when you look at them from a big picture perspective, are so ridiculous and petty that it's essentially a massive waste of time to give them but a second thought. Essentially, Most suffering for human beings is caused by taking something small very seriously, isn't it? By attaching a lot of importance to something tiny, impermanent, minuscule really, something that just doesn't matter, we make it into something that really does matter, suffer immensely over it, and then move on. Now we were always going to move on because the thing was always petty and small, but Why do we have to go through the big suffering period first? Why do we have to care so much 
about things that matter so little. That's what I want to talk about today. I want you to notice, especially if you're listening to this in a first world country, won't be the case for all of you, but most of you don't have what we would call real problems. It's exceptionally rare to have a real problem. A real problem might be, for example, a life-threatening illness, severe trauma from childhood abuse, uh, having your house burgled and everything that you value taken, having someone you care about die. There are such things as what you might call real problems, and by real I'm not being judgmental, I mean objectively speaking, nearly everyone who has the problem would suffer from it. It's kind of like, if you're a human, you're almost certainly going to suffer from this problem. doesn't matter who you are, your culture, your upbringing, anything. That's a real problem. It's something that's universal to all humans. So, what I'd call a subjective problem, an unreal problem, is one that only a small group of humans are going to be affected by. And they're only affected by it because of the narrative they give it. You think of a real problem like when I was working in Department of Corrections, I met my first ever child soldier. I mean, he was an adult by the time I met him. He was in 1920. But he had been refugeed from, I think, Sierra Leone, where he'd been a child soldier from the age of about eight. So he had murdered dozens of people uh, as a child soldier. He had committed rapes and everything before he even reached puberty. To say he was fucked up is putting it Really, quite lightly. He had real problems, right? He was a real problem, and he had plenty of them. He was almost unable to function in society. He was so severely damaged. Now compare that to being a little bit late for your meeting because you're stuck in traffic. You can't tell me that those are relative problems. Some philosophical academic could try to argue that it's all about perspective, but the fact is the human brain scientifically is organ that responds in certain ways to events and trauma and there's no way of saying that the human brain is equally responsive to those two aggravations right being a child child soldier for many years versus being stuck in traffic for a few minutes you can't tell me that those are comparable events because they're not any philosopher if you are somehow to put them through the childhood he had would come out fucked up. It's as simple as that. The human brain just can't take that kind of pressure. So when I say that you don't have a real problem, I mean you don't have a problem that can't be overcome by philosophy. A real problem is one that can't be overcome by philosophy. Or at least not immediately. I'm sure any problem can be with the right training and psychological support, coaching, mentoring, therapy, whatever's required, but it would take ages, you know. Like my child soldier, the best he could do is get to functioning in society without hurting people, perhaps. You know, I heard a story the other day of a guy who was on the phone to his wife while she was being murdered in front of their kids, and he had to listen to it. There's no amount of stoicism in the world that's going to make you feel good the next day after that, right? Whereas being stuck in traffic, you've forgotten about it after about an hour at work. They're not the same, they're not comparable. So when I say a small problem, which is 99.9% of your problems, I'm talking about something that actually not everyone would suffer from. And it entirely depends on your perspective and the narrative, the story you tell yourself about it. 
For example, being stuck in traffic. There are some people who like their morning commute. You know, they get to sing along to the radio. I used to enjoy smoking three cigarettes for some reason. In fact, I hated my job so much that the drive there was the best bit. I, I, it was such a long commute that I could listen to almost an entire Tool album, you know. I quite liked it. It was the only time I got to sing really loudly without feeling shame. A relationship breakup. A little bit more objective, a lot of people are hurt by relationship breakups, but it depends on the relationship, depends on why you broke up, and it depends on your perspective on relationships. There are people out there who just realise that every connection has its time in the sun and must come to an end, and they grieve quite healthily, you could say. They get over relationship breakups without major kind of suffering. They just grieve through it and accept it and are grateful for it quite quickly. Also being low on money. There are some people who are used to living broke. Or there are people who are really resourceful with money, so the amount they have in the bank account is never really a great concern to them. And yet there are others who get divorced, lose sleep, have heart attacks over being low on money. It's a really huge spectrum of how people react to the exact same thing. So what I'm talking about in today's podcast is having a big reaction to what we've just identified as a small problem, a problem that not everyone would have a big reaction to. So I don't want to undermine things that everyone has a big reaction to. It's fine to get upset about being diagnosed with cancer, okay? It's totally human to be devastated by the loss of a loved one, right? I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about you lying awake till three in the morning because you accidentally sent an angry email to your boss and now you're wondering if uh, he's going to react badly to it. That's a small problem. Okay. Or getting all upset because you burnt the dinner. That's a small problem. That's what I'm talking about. Cosmic perspective. I got that term from Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, actually from the Calvin, uh, Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. There's this idea if people took a little bit more time to look at the stars each day take on a cosmic perspective of how microscopic we are in the bigger sense of things, we'd actually be a lot more peaceful and a lot less bothered by everyday agitations. In practical terms, taking a cosmic perspective means not just being the participant in your life, but also the observer. See, we're both. We're always both. But most people live in this kind of participant mindset, which means... You are your life. You feel like you're looking out from inside your head, through your eye sockets, that you're this kind of thing living inside a body. And everything that happens to you is real and big and important. And you're just kind of present with everything. And you are everything. So you would say, I'm sad, if you're feeling sadness. You would identify with the feeling as if that's all that you are. I'm having a bad day, you might say, even if the day had been up and down but mostly down. So it's this kind of like all or nothing involvement. That's the participant. The observer is that mind's eye, that inner self that watches the participant. So like right now, as I'm doing this podcast, the participant is speaking, but the observer is watching him speak. So some part of me is watching me do my podcast right now. It's quite a bizarre sensation to tap into it. But immediately I get a sense of duality. There's the me that you would interact with, the one you're listening to right now. And then there's a silent one who just watches me live my entire life. It's what Eckhart Tolle would say is the only constant. 
you know, your body changes, you know, there's no particle in your body that's, you know, been there since your birth. Essentially, you're in a completely new body. Your perspective changes, your beliefs change over time. There's nothing about you stays constant. No mood ever lasts forever. No thought ever stays around for more than, you know, a few minutes. And yet something's been there your whole life. And that's what the observer is, the thing that's watched all these changes without changing itself. Cosmic perspective is also about having the big picture, long-term view. Rather than being caught up in the weeds, as they say, like getting stuck in the little details of the current activity and the current mood and the current thoughts, it sees those as a particle of the entire life. Not just in terms of physical, like who I am as a person is just one of seven billion people on a tiny planet in a vastly deserted universe. But also long term, like this podcast is one hour out of my life. It's one of hundreds of podcasts I've done, one of thousands of pieces of content. It's one tiny little thing that really doesn't matter in the big term sense of things. By the time I'm 80, I'm not going to look back and go, God, I wish I hadn't done that podcast. It's very unlikely that this is a significant moment in my life that feels really significant to the participant. Like, as I do this podcast, I feel like, man, I've got to get this right and be very helpful. Like, it's super important. There's also this idea that I get from the philosophy of pessimism. Time is a flat circle. And what this means is if you were to view our lives from the fourth dimension, from outside three dimension, outside time, if you could stay outside of time and observe it, then everything's happening all at once. And as fucked up as this sounds, what it really means is kind of, my life is already laid out from beginning to end. I'm just running through it. So because I'm in the dimension where time exists, I go from start to finish, but there's another dimension where you could observe the entire thing from start to finish all at once. And so that cosmic perspective is also like, It's not determinism exactly, or even fatalism, but just this idea that my life is already complete, and I'm just living it now, I'm experiencing. It's not that it's entirely pre-scripted, I do believe I have some sort of influence in it, but the potential pathways are already mapped out. If you imagine a supercomputer that plays chess, it already knows all the available options, no matter what the opponent does. The computer's easily able to adjust and plan all the eventualities. That's why computers these days can beat grandmasters at chess. It's just not possible to be smarter than that. Well, I kind of think of the universe as being that smart, I guess, that fourth dimension. My life, no matter what decisions I make, it's totally mapped out already. So I can kind of relax about the idea that I've got to make something of it because it's already been decided. I'm just living it. I'm just experiencing, finding out what it is. I'm not really creating it as much as I'm discovering it. So that's what I mean by cosmic perspective. You're both the participant, but you're also the observer. You can see things in the big picture. You can see how small you are in the bigger picture of things. You can see how small this moment is in the longer term. And you can see that everything is kind of happening as it should or must happen. And therefore, there's very little effort you need to actually put in uh, to try and like control it. The opposite of that, being the participant, is you can't see the forest for the trees. Everything is a big deal. Everything is treated as some permanent state. Like if you're anxious, you're worried about being anxious. That's what I call anxiety squared. 
You're like, I'm going to be this way forever. You might not have that thought, but you're behaving as if. It's like somebody breaks up with someone and they're devastated by it, as if the breakup is going to hurt that much all the time, right? Everything is such a big deal. Everything's treated like it's permanent. You treat everything like you've received a serious injury. Basically, what we talked about before, like objective big problems, like being a child soldier, war zone, having a serious deadly illness, having loved ones die, you know, objective problems. Being that kind of, whatever the opposite of cosmic perspective is, is is treating every little problem like it's one of those big ones, right? I often talk about it, like in my book, I talk about victims describe their life as if it's a crime being committed against them. That's the opposite of cosmic perspective. That blame, helpless, powerless victimhood that a lot of people feel stuck in and unable to budge. So the observer sees everything as neutral, predetermined, temporary. It's not a big deal. It's whatever you make of it. Even the big deal problems, you know, there's a huge range in how people will react to a serious illness. Some people will be crushed and depressed. Others will be inspired to live their best life. So there's still a range of responses available, even to objectively big problems. The observer sees, look, it's happening as it should happen. This is how the variables play out. There is no other way for reality to be right now. There's no point wishing for something different. I must work with what is. And temporary. No matter how much this hurts, no matter how much I wish it wasn't happening, it cannot last. It's the only the only constant is change. Right? It's one of the great paradoxes. Like right, right now I'm looking out my window, it's snowing. It means that getting my car prepared tomorrow for a visit is going to be a real hassle. Have to like defrost it and scrape all the ice off. It takes like 45 minutes. Now, a participant would be like, fuck, I can't believe we're going to have to deal with the car. As if, you know, someone just shot them. Whereas the observer in me just goes, once the car's dealt with, it's over. And it doesn't matter how many times you have to defrost it, eventually it's going to be spring. And having to defrost it will be over as well. So no matter how much of a hassle my car is, it's a temporary hassle. And it's certainly temporary in the sense of a comparison with my own endurance. There's no way the car is going to be such a hassle that I can't handle it. That I can't simply through serving time get past it. I can outlast this winter. So even if I can't deal with my car, I can just wait till spring. The car cannot beat me on time. It's temporary. So why do we do it? Why do we treat things like a big deal and suffer when there's really nothing to be gained? Right? Why do we lie awake worrying that your wife didn't want you to play chess on the phone? You know, what? what's the fucking point of that? Who wins in that scenario? And what's the justification for it? Where's the injury, as I'll keep saying in this episode? Well, one thing you've got to understand is that this is involuntary, actually. This is the fight-flight response. Now, human beings evolved the fight-flight response back when we were still some different type of primate, before Homo sapiens. It's a mammalian thing. In fact, even reptiles do it. So, fight-flight response is perceive a threat, your body reacts with the right hormones and neurochemicals to prepare you to either run away or take it on. In the case of freezing, is to have both of those simultaneously and not be able to move. But the thing is, we developed that for a time that no longer exists. Unless you're living in a very fucked up third world country right now. Like if you're listening to me from the Republic of Congo, 
then maybe your fight flight response is pretty relative to the situation you're in. Like you might die soon and your survival is constantly at risk. But most of you, I've seen the stats, most of you are living in the UK, USA, New Zealand, Australia, Sweden. It's very unlikely that you're having a fight or flight response to an actual survival risk. But your brain just is wired for perspective on danger. So if you have a fight or flight response to a bit of bad feedback by email from one of your colleagues, it's because that is your relative danger. In your mind, that's dangerous. You'll have a whole narrative about it as like, you know, people won't like me, I'll lose my job, we'll end up poor and homeless or whatever. Some catastrophic thing that's very, very unlikely to come true. Because there are no saber-toothed tigers where you live anymore and nobody's going to war where you live and you're not surrounded by gang activity and you don't have cancer. Because you don't actually have real threats, your mind has gone searching for the next best thing. It, It just changes its relativity you know somebody brought this up the other day there's almost no one happier than kids in a cancer ward it's a bizarre phenomenon but kids with like terminal illnesses generally appreciate and have more gratitude for life than other normal functioning kids why is that because they have a relative perspective they have a real perspective on what is dangerous and what is painful and what suffering actually is. So they can appreciate, and they're very unlikely to be aggravated by little things. Whereas if your life has basically been safe for a long time, it's been very unlikely that you were going to die. You're going to turn things that aren't dangerous into dangers. You can't help it. Your brain just keeps readjusting because it's always going to find something to have a fight-or-flight response to. The difference is now you're not having a fight-or-flight response to something that's actually dangerous. You're having a fight-or-flight response to a narrative that turns something dangerous. So that narrative in your head about how the email might make you lose your job, that's not actually real. There's no email in the world that will kill you, right? But you've managed to convince yourself that this is somehow linked to your death or severe survival risk. I want you to notice that things can be important to the participant, the you that everybody else interacts with, without actually being significant. For example, wanting to get to the movie on time. It can seem a big deal. You might rush to get to the movie, get frustrated that you can't find a parking space, roll your eyes, go, for fuck's sake, when you see there's a big queue outside. And yet, what happens if you're late? Pretty much absolutely nothing. Even if you miss the start of the movie. By the end of it, there's no injuries. Nothing's actually happened to you. This is classic around the emotion of getting offended, which is a branch off from the emotion of disgust. Now, disgust is actually there to prevent us from ingesting poison. That's my theory on it. The original version of disgust that our ancestors had was like something tastes poisonous, you get disgusted by it. But that's eventually evolved into what we call offense where you're disgusted by something that actually presents no significant threat. You know, it's like the uh, Kevin, what's his name? Kevin Hughes, the comedian. He did a whole bit about being offended. It's brilliant. And somebody goes, I'm offended. He goes, so? Be offended then. Nothing happens. And he's right, you know. You don't wake up the next day and like, you know, I was offended yesterday and now my spine doesn't work. Nothing happens when you're offended. Nothing happens when you're late for the movie. Nothing happens when somebody disappoints you. 
Nothing happens when you run a bit low on cash. Nothing happens when you have to wait an extra hour for your lunch. Nothing happens except to the participant. Something important is taking place when in reality, one one of the measures I'll talk about later is if in a year from now you've completely forgotten about it, then it wasn't significant. You take something like a real problem, like the loss of your parents, cancer, you remember that shit a year after it's finished. You remember it for the rest of your life. You're constantly reminded of it, you think about it all the time, maybe even traumatized by it. But nobody's ever been traumatized about being late for a movie, and yet, at the time, while it's happening, they're behaving as if it's traumatic. So I want you to notice that the participant can treat something like a big deal if the observer isn't paying attention and isn't being tapped into. So you go, wait, is it? Is it really a big deal? Is it really a big deal that I'm stuck in traffic? Is it really a big deal that I'm late for the movie? Is it really a big deal that my wife doesn't want me to play on my phone? Really? Will I remember this a year from now? Will I still have the scars? Will this require some sort of medical treatment or psychological intervention? Odds are, no. There's a really good chance that this will not even stick in your brain. It's so temporary. That's one of the key things to understand about trauma. You know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or complex PTSD, which is, you know, a series of traumatic events happen to build up a pattern. Something painful has become significantly disruptive. We keep returning to it, and it's to blame for our suffering, or at least we blame it. We get arrested development. Somebody who's been traumatized essentially kind of stopped moving psychologically at the time of the event. That's real trauma. So if someone abuses me sexually when I'm a child, and I stay childlike in my relationships with people for many years afterwards, that's, that's arrested development. That's trauma. I am traumatized. But if something happens to you and it's really bad, but you're basically fine months or years later, then no, you weren't traumatized. But what some people do is what you might call, I guess, almost manufactured trauma. They make something traumatic by constantly returning to it, dwelling on it, blowing it up in their mind, complaining about it, building it like... I call it sort of like manufactured complex PTSD, which is you take all the little grievances in your life, you constantly dwell on them, you ball them up together into one big acidic piece of poison sitting inside your gut. And you basically create a narrative about how hard your life is. Yet any one of those things written down on paper and somebody would be like, is that all? Even the accumulation of them, most people would look at that and go, yeah, that's a human life. What are you complaining about? Or at least most sort of confident people. It's a lot different to say, like, you've been on quite a few bad dates and you're struggling with your weight and your money fluctuates. That's not the same as being raped multiple times as a child. And yet a lot of people will turn it into essentially the same thing and will almost suffer equally to that. The key is to to see that returning to it is what causes your suffering. The dwelling, the mulling over things in your mind. People often do this when they had parents who like weren't really bad parents, just weren't very good at it. And they say, my relationships never work out because my parents were distant and I never take risks and I can't start my own business because my parents were discouraging and critical. It's like, yeah, you didn't have great parents, but you actually didn't have a traumatic childhood. You just had one that wasn't that great. 
The only reason you're traumatized by it is because you won't let it go. You won't fucking move on with your life. Now, it's hard to draw the line, but I have to call people out. I've worked with a lot of people. I'm like, dude, let go. You know, their parents are dead and they're still doing it. But my parents, you know, my dad never hugged me. Yeah, okay, that sucks. But how is that the reason that you won't go for the promotion at work? That's it's not objectively traumatic. It's tough. And it certainly, you know, causes attachment issues. And there's all sorts of diagnoses a psychologist could give you. But it's just not at the level of genuine traumatic event. Now, it doesn't mean you're not traumatized. It just means you've basically manufactured trauma. You've made it a big deal. Or at least a bigger deal than it really was. And we all do this. I'm not judging anyone. I'm I'm certainly not going to pretend I'm not a hypocrite here. took me a long time to get over my experiences with girls in high school. You know, I, I acted as if girls had severely wounded me in high school. And really, they were just girls being teenage girls and rejecting me. I wasn't particularly... You know, I wasn't the catch amongst the guys at my school, and they acted accordingly, and yeah, they were a bit mean about it, and some of them were a bit spiteful, but really, I don't have any injuries. I don't need to go and get fucking, like, specialized trauma therapy. I basically just needed to get the fuck over it and move on with my life. But I missed out on half of my 20s, socially speaking, because I just held on to it. And actually weaponized it. I dwelled on it so much I managed to use it as an excuse to stay away from girls and avoid taking risks. And this is what the participant does if the observer isn't engaged. They turn everything into a big deal, whereas the observer, at a glance, straight away will go, you know what, that's not a big deal, bro. So one girl said no to you. You're alright. You're fine. Walk it off. You know, the observer can see you're actually completely undamaged by this thing. But if you can't see that, then you can end up damaging yourself with the narrative. See, the participant in you, in all of us, he, she, wants to bathe in self-pity. Because it's actually a strategy for avoiding responsibility and the call to courage. See, someone who has no hope has no obligation. If I can convince myself that I am a victim of fate and that things are unfairly stacked against me, And that everything that happens to me is bad luck and it's a big deal. Essentially, I'm giving myself permission to bail. Like, you can't expect someone with no legs to run a race, right? So I can't expect the guy with all this bad luck and, you know, hardships in life to really have to try to achieve anything, to take any major risks, to do what other people do. Because, you know, I'm disabled, right? And that's what my participant did. You know, that was my story in my head for most of my life until my mid-twenties was, I'm unlucky. And it was a carefully crafted story that required me to focus on the things that agitated me and made me feel bad. And dismiss the things that went well for me and that felt good. And just kind of highlight, collect. I was like like a stamp collector. I had this book full of grievances. I remember once actually, God, how old was I? I wrote a book of all the things that pissed me off. You know, it's just this list of everything I didn't like about life. Why would I write a book like that? You know, it was a big book too, you know, for a teenager or whatever. I just filled out like a whole exercise book with grievances. Note I didn't choose to write a book of the things that have gone well for me, the privileges I've had in life, how lucky I am to be born in a first world country, to, you know, 
healthcare and schooling and everything available. I didn't write any of that. I was really like, oh, I hate when it rains and I have to go out to the car and I get wet on the way to the car. You know, it was just shit like that that I made a big deal and I like really dwelled on it and turned it into a reason why I don't have to try. So the observer is actually available when you watch other people. Notice how you judge other people for the same thing you do. Somebody complaining about something and you just say, oh, stop whinging, you fucker. It's not that bad. And yet you would complain about a similar thing if you were in their position. That's simply because it's easier to observe someone else. It's kind of not really hypocritical. It's just we can't really, until we train ourselves, we can't apply the observer to our own life. We we can apply it easily to others, though. We can see what everyone else is doing wrong and why they're suffering and how it's not even that bad. But you put us in the same position and all of a sudden it's a big deal. We turn off the observer and we just become the participant, just like they're doing. Switching to the observer is so worth it. And that's what I really want to do in today's podcast is open your mind to trying out this cosmic perspective. It's essentially something that you can actually switch on like a light inside your mind with just a little training. And it changes your life. Now, you're going to be resistant to doing it for those reasons I just said. It means you'd have to take responsibility for your life. It means there's no excuse for the suffering in your life. It's all a narrative except for the few rare events that are absolutely objectively painful you being offended and disappointed and frustrated those aren't objectively painful moments that's you turning a neutral event into something bad you have to take responsibility for that and you're not always going to get it right like i said i stayed awake just the other night fuming sulking sometimes i still get it wrong but most of the time i don't at least compared to my old life i'm not trying to compete with anybody else here but the old me would do that over everything and now I only do it occasionally and usually when I'm tired and stressed and I'm kind of my defenses are down but most of the time now I'm able to just switch on this light in my head that just sees the bigger picture and just relaxes me instantly you know I have to do these pretty pretty brutal exercises with my daughter at the moment she has um, some muscle development issues that I'm helping her with It's basically kind of physiotherapy for babies. And I don't know if it actually hurts her, but it's certainly uncomfortable. And she cries a lot. But while it's happening, she's crying and it kind of breaks my heart a little bit, even though I'm a bit stone-hearted and psychopathic. But it's still like, nobody wants to hurt their own daughter, I'm sure. Well, okay, some people do, but I definitely don't. But straight away, I just get this idea like, one day she'll be running around playing sports and able to kind of do stuff. And it's because I'm doing this right now. And she'll get over it, you know. By the time she's finished the next feed, she'll have forgotten that we even did this. So it's okay that she's crying now and uncomfortable now, because this is very temporary. She's not really being harmed, and neither am I. I'm able to just flick on that switch, and it allows me to do what I need to do. Now, I'm not special, as I always say. Anybody can learn this stuff, and I want to pass it on to you guys now. But switching on the observer... It creates new perspectives, it opens up solutions, possibilities. Where before you couldn't see the forest for the trees, now you can step back and see the whole forest, you can see all the paths out of it, you can even see whether or not it's even a problem being in it. And it diminishes the size of your present aggravations, it goes from being a big deal to just something that seems like a big deal right now, but probably actually isn't. You know, when you can see, you know, you have to pull over on the side of the motorway because you've got a flat tire and you're just like, fuck my life and it's raining. 
You can just step out and go, you know what, a year from now, I'll forget that this even occurred. This isn't that big a deal. I just have to do tasks over time until it's dealt with. All of it's within my capability. I will be home for dinner. What am I complaining about? This will just be a story to tell tomorrow. Diminishing the size of the thing that seems like a big deal and seeing how small it actually is in the bigger scheme of things. It also helps you build up trust in yourself, which is one of the key components to self-confidence. A lot of people essentially don't trust themselves, and it's because they make a big deal out of everything, which makes them feel like they can't handle shit. But it's an illusion, because if you're still here listening to me, then you've handled everything that's ever happened to you. Take a moment to just absorb that. Every aggravation you've had since the day you were born, every problem you faced that was in your way, everything that's ever been of any suffering to you, if you're listening to me right now, and things are basically okay for you as you listen, then that means you overcame all of them. At least thousands, if not millions, of dilemmas. You solved them all. Now, I'm not saying you solved them well or quickly, but here you are. They are no longer with you, these problems. And the ones you have now are as temporary as the ones that you've solved. So it's really weird to not trust yourself, because if you're listening to me, then you're very trustworthy, because you've smashed it out of the park. It doesn't mean that you're living your best life, but you're certainly surviving, right? You've certainly got that much going. You've survived everything. As my previous coach said, there is no such thing as a new problem, there are just recurring problems. And as soon as he said it, I realized that was true about everything in my life. Everything that I thought was new and difficult was just a different manifestation of problems I've had before. Think like I've got a newborn daughter. It sounds like a new set of challenges, right? But it's not. There's learning new things that I know nothing about. That's an old challenge. I've been dealing with that one since I was a baby. They're struggling with not having enough sleep. This is not the first time I've not had enough sleep. There's struggling with being responsible not only for myself but for other people. I've been doing that since I was a kid. There are no new problems for me in having a kid. They're just a new manifestation. So I've dealt with them before, which means I'll deal with them again. So what am I worried about? And switching to the observer also allows you to do something that humans are very bad at. And that is be statistically accurate. In Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, he basically talks about how most of our cognitive biases make it very difficult for us to be accurate with likelihoods, with statistics. How likely something is to happen or not happen, we're really bad at that. When somebody thinks, like, oh my god, that email I sent to my boss is going to get me fired, they're usually wrong about that. You know, if I ask that girl out, it's going to be humiliating. They're usually wrong about that. We're really bad at predicting how things are going to go, but we feel like we're really good at it because we often actually don't go to try and prove ourselves right or wrong. But when you take the observer perspective, you're far more likely to be accurate. Like when you ask yourself, what's the likelihood that I'll eventually get through this? You'll probably be quite accurate about that. How likely is it that this is going to be devastating and catastrophic to my life you'll probably be quite accurate about that but when you're in the participant perspective you're very inaccurate everything's a big deal which means you're you know statistically wrong so of course how do we do this let's talk about it 
basically I've just got a bunch of bullet points in front of me of ideas that occurred to me on how I implement the switch into the cosmic perspective. What's really important is a balance of pain. I say, you know, there's three pillars to building confidence. One is trying to be present and engaged in what you're doing. One is reflecting and measuring yourself accurately. And the one that's most important is regularly choosing to get uncomfortable. Most people are regularly trying to avoid discomfort. Notice how spoiled children are easily upset while those cancer patient children that we talked about before are often joyous when they're not suffering in pain. Why is it that the kid who's got everything suffers more than the kid who's barely got a life? Because one knows pain and the other doesn't, so it makes pain. If you constantly expose yourself to a chosen discomfort every single day, Everything else seems lighter and easier. Whether it's having a cold shower, facing one of your fears every day, confronting someone, trying to eat healthy or exercise, physical exercise is good. You'll notice a lot of athletes are quite calm about the rest of their lives. You notice people in the military are pretty chilled out most of the time when they're not on duty. If you have some sort of regular discomfort in your life that you chose, that you didn't avoid but ran into, you'll notice the rest of your life gets easier. You'll notice that everything else doesn't seem like a big deal. For example, if you're training for an ultramarathon and you've been running so hard that you've got shin splints and blisters and passing out, the next day when you're stuck in traffic, you don't give a fuck, right? Because it's nothing compared to what you've been through. Now, you don't actually have to put yourself through that much pain. You just need to choose things that are meaningfully uncomfortable. Ask someone out on a date, ask your boss for a promotion, have a cold shower, work out till exhaustion, and you'll notice the other things in life aren't such a big deal. The other discomforts aren't so uncomfortable when you get to choose your discomfort. Because if you don't choose, it will be chosen for you. You will make discomfort. Suddenly getting an email in the middle of the night is uncomfortable. you know, Or somebody disagreeing with you at the party is uncomfortable. If you don't have discomforts that you've chosen, then these will become your discomforts. So you can never allow yourself to get too comfortable, but you also cannot be too injured. If you go all David Goggins on it and just like try to hurt yourself all the time, then there's actually all you've got is pain. And that's not a great life either, unless you're him. And he's, let's face it, a freak of nature. So you've got to find that balance. And that is just choose one major thing a day that makes your heart race or makes you really confused or is really hard to do. And then the rest of the day will seem easier. If you try to avoid it, the rest of the day will seem difficult. Language is what makes it real. If you want to tap into the observer's perspective, you have to speak from the observer perspective, even if it's only speaking to yourself. Listen to the difference, right? This is how a participant speaks. I have no idea what to do. I'm so fucking lost. Okay? And this is what the same person sounds like when coming from the observer perspective. I notice that I'm experiencing confusion right now. It will probably pass, but while I'm in it, I feel quite lost. Can you feel the difference there? Can you feel the like relaxation of the observer? Like, I'm in this state, but it's going to end and it's not that bad? Another example... Fuck, I'm stuck in traffic. Oh my god, I'm going to miss my meeting. 
from the observer perspective is like, look at me getting all worked up just about being stuck in traffic. What a good problem to have. See again the difference. So if you actually learn to start talking to yourself and others from this perspective, to give commentary on yourself. So I can notice that I took what you said personally. For some reason I decided to make what you said like offensive to me, even though it probably wasn't about me. Think of the difference of saying that to someone versus saying, how dare you say that? That's so offensive. right? That observer perspective will make itself real through language. One of my favorites is to ask myself a simple question. Where's the injury? It comes from this assumption. If something is genuinely bad for me, I should be able to prove it. I should be able to show anybody else on the planet there's the injury and that person should say, yeah, fair enough, right? Like if I show 100 people, at least 90 of them should say, you know what, that is bad. It should be something I can show. A physical injury, some detrimental impact in my life somehow, even like a psychological malfunction, inability to think, for example, like dementia. If I can't show it to someone else, is it even real? I get this thing when I'm stressed where I start telling myself I'm behind on my work. How can I show that I'm behind on my work to someone? Because as soon as, as soon as I show them my task list, they're going to be like, wait, you created that task list. What are you behind exactly? How can you be behind? What's in front? And I often get the sensation when I say I'm behind, like, it's Monday for me, but that reality is already Wednesday. You know, like, like I'm actually literally behind on time, like I've been left behind. I can't show that to anyone, that feeling. It's not real. It's like, my boss is going to kill me. Really? Where are your injuries? There should be blood all over the floor. Do we need a paramedic? Or is nothing actually happening? Nothing at all? There's one I've talked about before. It's one of the best ones for insecurity around money. Just look up. Is there a roof over your head? Because if so, you aren't that poor. Until you look up and you see the night sky and you're lying in a ditch, you have enough money. No matter what your bank account says, no matter what the feelings in your body say, there is no actual injury from your current financial state. If you have a roof over your head, food in the fridge, access to clean drinking water, maybe you don't have access to all the pleasures and luxuries that you want, but try convincing someone else that that's an injury. Good luck with that. So I ask myself, where's the injury? And if I can't find one, other than my own narrative inside my head, if I can't find something that I can't prove to somebody else, then I have to admit to myself, this isn't real. I'm getting worked up about something imaginary. There's a couple of uh, elements from Stoicism that I've stolen and used. One is, this too shall pass. Just a little reminder, whatever you're going through, the only thing you can be sure of is that it's temporary. If it's a breakup, eventually you'll be fully broken up and moved on. If you're broke, eventually you'll have money again or you'll die, but either way it will be over. If you've got some illness, you'll get well again. If you've got an injury, you'll eventually be able to move again. If you're stuck in traffic, eventually you'll get to work. It's going to pass, whatever it is. And another one, is this endurable? Can you endure whatever it is until it passes? Can I handle this winter until it's not winter anymore? If so, then why complain about it? That's from Marcus Aurelius. 
If you can endure it, then endure it. Stop complaining. Complaining adds nothing to it. It certainly doesn't speed up the endurance. It doesn't help either way. A great example of this is, you know, each night I have to get up and burp Chloe after her feed. Some parents are lucky enough that, you know, when they do the night feeding, they just put the baby straight back down. But because Chloe has severe reflux, I have to actually burp her. So, sometimes it takes up to 15 minutes for her to burp. And I'm like, dead asleep, almost middle of the night, 2, 2 a.m. I've got to go get up and walk around, change positions, pat her on the back, try all the shit to get her to burp. I'm just like, come on, I'm going to fucking sleep, you know. I'm just at the end of my rope. But then I just ask myself, like, is this going to last forever? Not only this one burping, but having to burp her. Will I still be doing this when she's nine years old? No. In fact, in 15 minutes, I'm going to be under the covers again. So what the fuck am I complaining about? I will get through this. What's the point of getting upset about it? How does that help? It doesn't speed things up. In fact, it seems to slow things down. Another one I like to ask myself is... How long do I want to keep this pain going? It's a way of taking responsibility for it. You might ask yourself, how much longer am I going to stay at the pity party? How much longer do I want to keep dragging this thing out? Another hour, a few days, a few weeks? How much longer am I going to make myself suffer with a narrative here? You can notice people do this. Like when, uh, like with having a kid, it severely curtailed my working hours. You know, I'm, I'm, I used to work sort of about... Th- five to six hours a day, and now it's more like two to three. Now I've got to somehow provide for a new daughter and my wife on severely reduced hours. So this narrative comes into my head like, oh my god, not enough time to work is going to ruin my business. There's no evidence of that. We've got plenty of savings. Business is actually going really well somehow. I don't know how that's happening. I can barely like get a podcast out, but clients are flooding in. I'm almost full. So, how long am I going to keep this pain going? How long am I going to live the fantasy of running out of money before I realize that I'm not? Like, do I want to keep going for weeks? Months? Like, how long do I want to feel bad for? Because it's my choice. I can I can stop it right now. In fact, boom, stopped. Right there. I actually stopped this about a week ago, but... Notice you can turn it off. You just have to go, you know what, that's enough. Time to leave the pity party, put your ego down... Put that desperate need to prove that life's harder for you than it is for others back in its drawer and just get the fuck on with life. Because odds are, you're fucking fine. you got to talk to yourself this way. you got to be hard on yourself. Like, quit being a little bitch. Quit whining. You're fine. Yep, it hurt. It's over now. Move the fuck on. doesn't mean you got to suppress pain and pretend that things don't bother you. Just get it out and move the fuck on. Don't dwell. Ask yourself, what's the likelihood that this is permanent and unsurvivable? What's the likelihood that this ends in my death? You know, a bigger, slightly bigger event was when I got kicked out of the Czech Republic a couple of years ago for fucking out my visa. That seemed like quite a big deal, and at the time I put this closer to the objectively big problem thing. Like most people, if they're kicked out of their country, if they're extradited, uh, it's a big deal. Especially when you're like, I have no idea where I'm going to stay and I don't have much money which was my situation at the time. You know, I was basically homeless, begging people to sleep on their floors. But the likelihood that I wouldn't survive it, that I wouldn't eventually figure it all out, that, you know, within three to 12 months, I wouldn't be back on my feet, 
No, it's very unlikely that that was going to be the thing that kills me. You know, when you add it all up, I had family that would have supported me if everything went to shit. I had the resourcefulness that had gotten me this far. This is not a bigger problem than anything I've ever had before. It's just a new one, but it's just basically problems that need to be solved. It's going to be a period of uncomfortable times and confusion and frustration and lack of luxury, sure, but not a permanent one. And here I am, a couple of years later, living a fairly fucking comfortable life, to be fair. So I guess it wasn't permanent. So why did I spend three weeks miserable about it, instead of just getting on with it? And finally, just imagine your whole life is actually mapped out, and I don't mean fate, as in you're just walking a path that you can't change, but that any variable you add, any time you make a decision, that just maps it out to the end as well, like... This thing can be viewed from the outside, from the fourth or fifth dimension, where you can see your whole life from start to finish, everything all at once. With that in mind, how significant and important is this current moment? Will you be thinking about it a year from now? Have you actually been in something similar before and got through it? Because if it's not a big deal, why make it into one? Why not just shrug it off and go, huh, some more bullshit. I'll probably get through this. So those are my thoughts on taking a cosmic perspective. I'm not going to pretend I get it right every time, but I get it right a lot more than I used to, and my quality of life has gone up immensely since starting that. I recommend people like Eckhart Tolle, Byron Katie, Marcus Aurelius. These are great people to reference for uh, developing this perspective. Meditation helps philosophical study helps and just uh spending time with people who have lives that are worse than yours that really helps you know i spend a lot of time working department of corrections with people at the very bottom of the social ladder i remember this one guy coming in and there was a slug on his shirt and he was like oh yeah i was sleeping under a bus stop and i got covered in slugs and i was just looking at that going whoa my life is not that bad <laughs> right like Whatever I was complaining about today, I'm going to shut up about that now because I did not wake up in the underneath a bus stop covered in slugs, you know? So try and find some people who have it worse than you and really see that shit's just not so bad. It's really not. Most of your suffering is you imagining that things are worse than they are. Hopefully that helps. Again, if you want to work on this, please get in touch. There's room on my group coaching program if you want to join other people who are working on this stuff. It's my most affordable uh, coaching program that you can join. And uh, I will see you guys all next time. Cheers. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity.